This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mintz. Bail is refused. You're out of order! If it pleases the court. To adopt this affirmation, please say the words, I do. I do. Nothing further from this court. Given the serious nature of this offence, this case is dismissed. Welcome to The Wigs. I'm your host, Jim Minns. We're doing things a little different on the podcast these next few episodes. As many of our listeners may be aware, Stephen Lawrence is in the middle of finishing a trial before embarking on a stint as a New South Wales Upper House MP, potentially, at the 2023 New South Wales state election. So this, combined with the busy schedules of Felicity Graham and Emmanuel Kirkasharian, has limited The Wigs' ability to access studio time as a four-piece. So instead, we've decided to end our season with a series of Know Your Wigs special interviews to discover the history uh, of our hosts and what drives them and where their passions for law and reform come from. And first up is Stephen Lawrence. I sat down with Stephen in the House of Mins, my childhood home, to get an insight into the man. I got a lot out of this conversation and I hope you all do as well. Please enjoy Know Your Wig, Stephen Lawrence. But okay, in lieu of a Wigs episode, I've got Stephen Lawrence. Hey mate, good to be here. Good to be here in Penshurst Street. Thank you for joining me in my childhood home. It's a really beautiful house. It's interesting, yeah, interesting place to do a podcast. It mate, it's a gorgeous house and it's got an amazing tree in the backyard. Yeah, 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 big jacarina, it's great. Good place to reminisce from my childhood to yours. So, uh, just, you know, in, in lieu of an intro, um, obviously you mentioned at the start of the show, we are doing these... Uh, pre-recorded interviews uh, instead of proper wigs episodes in the lead up to the election due to the fact that you are heavily involved in the campaign that is currently mm-hmm. underway. We're all uh, very busy. All very busy. Felicity's busy. Emmanuel's busy. Myself, very busy. So here are these episodes to sort of give insight into the wigs. I think we should, you know, maybe we should call them, you know, unwigged. <laughs> the wigs unwigged. Who are the wigs? Or, or, or your latest wig, introducing the wig, Stephen Lawrence. So, uh, you're obviously, as we know from your reputation, a practicing criminal barrister. Uh, when did you become a lawyer and why did you become a lawyer at the very instance? So, mate, I became a lawyer. So, I graduated, so I became admitted in May 2002 in the ACT. Mm-hmm. Um, why the ACT? What were you there doing because, there? Because, so my sort of background in terms of law studies and stuff was. I moved to Darwin in 1997 and Darwin. Yeah, worked on a pearl farm in the Kimberley for a bit. Pearl and farm. Yeah, then I started law at NTU, the Northern Territory University, which I think is now called Charles Darwin. When did you graduate from high school? 92. Okay, so you so you so you So I did an arts degree. So you, okay, so you straight into university. Straight into uni. Yeah, okay. did an arts degree at Sydney um, in government and public administration. Okay. And then I had a year off in between. Yeah. In between sort of two degrees. Then I was in the yeah, moved to the NT, started first year law in nineteen ninety eight. Yeah, wow. Yeah, the NTU Law School, which was really great. NT Law School? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. But why there? What made you go? Man, I just wanted to move to Darwin. Why? Yeah. I don't know. Like, my sister was up there with her boyfriend, and he, he was working on the pole farm as well. Okay. Like, she took sort of his position. Yep. Um, man, I, like, I was 22 or whatever. Yep. Just wanted to get out of Sydney and, yeah, get away and... Um, so yeah, moved to the territory, which is just such a great place. Like, what, what was your relationship to like at with Sydney in the late nineties? Did you enjoy the place, or was it pretty shit? Or, mate, I, 
Yeah, like I grew up here mainly. Like I was born in Griffith and then sort of lived in Wollongong, but my family... Well, you've been around. Moved here. Yeah. Yeah, so my dad worked um, in health administration. Yeah, right. So he uh, was out in Griffith, working at the hospital in the 70s. So I was born there. But um, And then, yeah, he moved for work to Wollongong. And then uh, we moved to Sydney when I was about nine or ten. I started year four in Sydney. Yeah. Um, so, mate, yeah, like I went to uni here, most of high school yeah. here, or high school here. Um, so, mate, my relationship to Sydney in the 90s, yeah, like... I had a good time growing up and stuff, but I also always had a sense of wanting to get out. Okay. You know, go somewhere else and live somewhere else. So I headed to Darwin, about as far away as you can go yeah, in Australia. Yeah. yeah. And, mate, I love the Northern Territory, and I've always wanted to go back there. It's a good place. And applied for different jobs over the years, but never ended up sort of going back there ultimately, just for a whole lot of different reasons. But, um, so, yeah, started law there, and then... Beginning of 99, transferred to Canberra. But to hang ANU. on, if I can draw, draw you back, why are you doing law in the NT? What was the catalyst? You've just done an arts degree. Yeah, mate, it wasn't. So and how old are you at this stage? 22. 22, yeah, 21, 22. Yeah, okay. mate, I applied for law. I got in at, I was trying to think back to it all. So moved to Darwin in 97, applied for law at the end of 97, Got into, where did I get into? I got into NTU and I think the University of Western Sydney mm-hmm. or something. Yeah. Um, and then I was already living up there, so decided to stay there and do it. Yeah, okay. Um, like I didn't sort of get a good arts degree, you know. What do you mean? You didn't happy with you? Like I didn't get like high marks, so I couldn't like go straight into law or transfer oh, okay. or whatever. So it was a bit of a journey for me. Sure. But was um, that always the goal? Mate, sort of, yeah. Like, it is always something that I wanted to do, sort of in the back of my mind Why? and stuff. But I never thought that I could do it. Did like, you come from a... Was anyone in the family who was a lawyer or...? No, no. What was the drive? Mate, I think I've always been interested, or definitely was interested as a young person in social justice and how society's organised and... So law was always of interest to me. I, I guess I was always interested in, you know, the idea of defending people, standing up for people's rights, all that sort of stuff. So I sort of, you know, conceived of the law as a way to do that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, then you go into being a lawyer and, you know, you pursue that. And in many ways, I've been able to do that. Mm. But then you sort of see the limitations of the law ultimately, you know, as a lawyer. Um yeah, so that was sort of in the back of my mind. But then I wasn't like a very good school student at all, wasn't a very good uni student. So it was for me, it was like a circuitous route, I suppose, to get my law degree. And it's been good. I've had the opportunity over the years, like when I was a counsellor and stuff, to talk to school students. And I'll often tell them about my sort of journey to being a lawyer and that it wasn't a very straightforward one, yeah. you know, and it took a lot of years after school to get into law and ultimately do a law degree. Mm. And you know, I sort of, you know, I like to tell those kids that just because you don't get the HSC that oh, 100%. that might get you straight into whatever, don't think that you won't get there because there's all sorts of ways to get there. And, absolutely, absolutely, mm. Fun- and fundamentally true. I mean, uh, like I was, you know, the HSC, the one that just went past. I, there was a lot. I just remember having a conversation with my wife about just a lot of those stories. Like, oh, don't worry about. It. Like, I think there must be a re-emphasis on hammering that point home because of the pressure that can be put. Like, I, I wouldn't be able to sustain that level of pressure yeah. in my late teens or my mid-twenties 
probably now in my late 30s, yeah. maybe you can give me that type of pressure. But that's now, you know, and to, to face those. And like, you know, as you and I both know my story, I'm finishing tertiary education now mm. in my late 30s. Yeah. So, you know, it definitely, the, def- the, um, the sun doesn't set on 19 years of age. Mm. Yeah. And Matt, I think when you're that age, you don't have a lot of perspective. Right. You know, and I think there's a lot of legitimate mental health concern. Were you the kids. oldest? No, I was number four of five. Yeah, so I was the third of three. And when you've got overachieving siblings, that doesn't help either. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, mm. I think you're right. I think there's some pressure there. Mm. Yeah. But, you know, as you say... Did, did you ever doubt that you would... Was this... Were you just sort of flying in, flying out? Or you knew that you could finish a degree because of your heart's history, so therefore you knew you could finish a law degree? Or you're just like, I'll test the waters and we'll see how we go? Oh, no, I think I knew that I'd finish it. Okay. And... Um... I knew pretty much from when I went into it that I wanted to work in criminal law. Okay. Um, and I don't know exactly why that is. It always seemed kind of accessible to me. Like it was a form of law even before I started studying law that I sort of had some understanding of and affinity with and wanted to do it. And lots of other parts of the law, I don't know, they're just not as accessible and understandable, I think, to the community. Yeah. Yeah, whereas before I was a lawyer, I wanted to be a criminal lawyer. I sort of had a strong sense of that. And then ultimately, though I didn't do that well in criminal law at uni, funnily enough. Really? Yeah, I think I didn't get a great mark in it, actually. Interesting. And I know a couple of people, including a judge who didn't do that well in criminal law, that really? then went on to specialise in it. Yeah. Well, yeah, isn't that funny? Mm, yeah, 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 yeah. I, um, I had a similar um, I had a similar run-in with a few other... Um, a few other uh, uh, subjects that I th- was heavily interested in that I didn't do too well in, particularly constitutional law, mm. which sounds really boring and pompous, but it's quite fundamental and exciting, I think. Yeah. <laughs> like, it really is the structural... Like, it's the support beams for everything, and knowing it and knowing, what, knowing it well really, I think, it is quite advantageous. Yet I just didn't... I, I, I actually didn't do well in the assignment... Mm. But I did well in the exam. But I always look back on the assignment and being and seeing how shallow the marks were, and sort of taking that aboard. Like, oh no, this is something that I feel like I'm drawn to. Yet I've got, you know, um, th- there's a barrier there that's not letting me pursue it. But it's not ultimately not true. I mean, it's it really is for something with the law. It's not how you sort of dip your toes in. It's how you swim the current. Right? Absolutely, it's the practice yeah. that makes sort of who you are in that field flourish. Yeah. And, you know, when you do a law subject, it's a pretty short period of time with a particular lecturer doing particular essay topics. Yeah. And I don't think it necessarily... It might often kind of reflect your ultimate aptitude for that area, but not always. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not always at all. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, constitutional law is something, funnily enough, that's come up a lot in my criminal practice. I know. Yeah, which I really enjoy and love, but found very challenging at uni. Right. But in, then in your own time, you sort of study it and absorb it and I mean, the nature of the beast competent. is... Right, because it presents itself to you whether you're ready to, um, whether you're ready to uh, engage with it or not. Yeah. Because it, it, ha- it plays a factor in whatever matter is presented before you, right? So, before we go into sort of that sort of legal hyperbole area, at this stage, you've decided what well, you was always, uh, uh, for a number of years, your 
decision to pursue a legal pathway. You found a way in through NTU and then subsequently transferring over to the ACT. Mm. When did that transfer happen and why did that transfer happen? So I transferred at the end of 1998. So I started at, at ANU in 1999. And was that, was that purely a move, purely for academic reasons? Or why were you making that move to yes. the ACT? From one territory to the other? Yeah, I guess it was about getting a degree from the best uni that I could. Okay. Um, I think ANU, from memory, was the only one that I applied to. I didn't want to move back to Sydney. Sort of had a strong feeling against that. Okay. Um, And I got really good marks at uh, NTU in first year. So I was in a pretty good position then. Um, But yeah, I just didn't want to move back to Sydney. I think having grown up there and sort of being away, I just wanted uh, to keep being away, I guess. Um, So then started at ANU beginning of 1999. And ANU was great. I loved Canberra. And then I finished uh, law there. Then I got my first job, the Attorney General's Department. That's pretty cool. Mm, yeah, it was great. For the ACT government? No, for the Commonwealth government. Oh, okay. Yeah. Excellent. Mm. Wow, so you worked in um, Parliament House? No, so I worked in the Attorney General's Department. Oh, depart- oh excuse me. Right, yeah, right, right. in Barton. And, um, yeah, of course. So my first job was in the... Public servant, straight into it. Straight into it, yeah, in the International Crime Cooperation Branch. Which wow. Is the branch that does extradition and mutual assistance. And when I started there, the Christopher Scase case was still going on. Wow. So the little unit I was going in was actually handling the Scase case. And then he died very shortly after I started there. Right. Which was quite a sort of big day in the office. Yeah. Because that case had been going on for years. And He's living in Spain. He was living in Spain. And there's some yeah. sort of uh, diplomatic negotiation mm. going on. Wow. And so did you get any taste of that at all? Yeah, I remember having to work on a summary of it for the minister's office at one point. Um, that was obviously an outgoing extradition request. So the litigation was in Spain. Yeah. So the Spanish government sort of appears on behalf of the Australian government in those situations. So it was quite different to an incoming request where we'd be giving instructions to council and stuff. Right, right, right. And right, appearing right. on behalf of the foreign country here. But yeah, it's pretty fascinating. But all sorts of interesting cases. The... Um, yeah, the one I'll never forget was on the 10th of September 2001, I was involved in an extradition case, which was two Mexicans who yeah. come to Australia to story. Work, on the, uh, work on the boxing team at the Sydney Olympics. Nine days, did you say 2000? Yeah, September 10, 2001. Okay, so nine days So after. the day before September 11. Yeah, 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 sorry, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And... Um, they were sort of big drug lords, big international drug lords based in Mexico. And yeah. They were, were very keen on boxing okay. and had gotten onto the, like, the support team for the Mexican boxing team at right. the Olympics. Okay. And they then, so the United States put in an extradition request for them. Okay. They were arrested, held in custody. On September 10, they escaped yes. out of prison in Sydney. Yeah. And um, I distinctly remember leaving the office and having a chat with a fellow that was an advisor for the Minister for Justice. And we were talking about the case and I was sort of the responsible case officer for it. So I was talking to him and he said to me, mate, this is, a, this is going to be huge news tomorrow. <laughs> Two Mexican drug lords have broken out of prison in a truck out of Parkley Prison. Totally. It'll be all over the papers. 
then I got home, <laughs> I was watching the late night news, September 11 happened, no one ever talked about Baldrama and Kiros anymore. <laughs> what was the ultimate outcome? Mate, the ultimate outcome, and this should be a movie I reckon, was um, a fellow, so they were on the run for quite a long time, a really? couple of months or whatever. Months? Yeah, Yeah, I think months, could be weeks. Shit. And then a fellow flew into Australia from America. He was lining up at customs. He dropped out of his pocket a small bag of cocaine. Yeah. Uh, he was pulled aside by customs. And in the interrogation process, I think they found the fake passports for Baldrama and Kiros. So he was there to get them he out. He was there to bring the fake passports and get them out. Wow. And then they... I don't know exactly how the sting worked, but he led them to them, I think, in a hotel room in country oh, Victoria. amazing. It's amazing. It'd be such a good movie. Wow. Yeah, but it just got totally swamped by September 11th. Wow. Yeah, but that's just an example of these um, just really interesting cases to do with extradition. And uh, it was a, just a really good first job. Really good first job. Did you ever think after your time at the Attorney General's for the federal government that, you know, were you set in your path or, I mean, you're relatively new in the, in the law, um, were you getting guidance from people that this is probably the best, the best avenue for you for the long term, you know, as a public servant or did you think you might start your own practice or, you know, specifically because you wanted to work in the criminal field or did you ever think you'd come back to Sydney or, I mean, like, it sounds like the world's your oyster. Mm. How, what, what did you, what do you... Do you remember of that time where you were going to go forward or did you think that was going to be it? So, mate, I worked there for about 18 months and then just decided that I had to do courtroom work. Yeah, okay. Um, So I started looking around and I put in for with a couple of private defence firms and also the DPP, ACT DPP, and I got a job at the DPP. So I started at the DPP around the time I was admitted because you could then work at AGs without being admitted as long as you had a law degree. So I started at the DPP and got admitted in May of 2002, mm-hmm. and um, which was great because unlike a lot of people that start in criminal defence advocacy work, I got really good training. Yeah. So we had like a two to three week training program when you started. Uh, the ACT DPP is a bit of a different place to be a prosecutor because there's no police prosecutors. Right. So you're doing the... You know, the officers doing the full range of matters from traffic to murder trials. And so the federal police are also the local police. Yeah, they provide policing services in the ACT. Right, right, right. So I started doing what was called the A-list, which is like the general court list where all matters start. Yep. So you'd be the prosecutor responsible for that. So you might do five to ten bail applications in a morning, then do all the mentions and short sentence matters. And this is the... New South Wales equivalent to like just the magistrate's court. Yep. Yep. Yeah, yeah, right. right. Magistrate's okay. Busy court. day, yeah. Really busy day. Yeah. yeah, and yeah, I just remember starting that job, and yeah, like it was really stressful and hard. Like it's a you know you're in sort of courtroom one, could be like a hundred people in there. Yeah, you're a brand new lawyer. Sure, it all feels very important and serious. Eh? And. Um, but a really good way to learn your way around the courtroom, basically. Like, it was very sort of intense training in that sense. And then ultimately, then over the sort of next year or two, moved on to, to doing a lot of contested hearing work and ultimately specialised in domestic violence prosecution for a time. Wow. And the ACT at that time had just started a thing called the 
ACT Domestic Violence Intervention Project, I think it was called, which sort of picked up a model that had been developed in the States around a coordinated government approach to DV. So had things like specialist prosecutors, specialist police officers, a sort of whole government sort of approach where there'd be a coordinated meeting every week of all the different agencies to track the new cases and track the ongoing cases, make sure the complainants were getting wraparound support, a specialist DV list, so a specialist magistrate. And that was just a really great thing to be a part of and gave me this really interesting crash course in the dynamics of domestic violence relationships, the complexities around adjudicating those sorts of allegations, real insight into the phenomena that can be sort of particular to those matters where... You know, people, generally women, will make complaints and then seek to retract them because... They want to go back, right? Yeah, they want to go back. They love Mm. them. It's affecting Mm. the family financially. They're scared of them. They've been threatened. It can be a whole range of reasons, but it's this really endemic phenomena where, you know, people seek to retract allegations. And what we tried to offer was a very... a very good service in terms of every complainant had a meeting with the prosecutor, you know, at least once, an opportunity to sort of talk the matter through, support from a witness assistant officer that was tied in with the other support groups and gave me a really interesting insight into the range of different DV offenders, the range of different contexts that it comes up in. So that's when I'm hopefully now sort of moving into Parliament and might be, you know, responsible for legislating in this area. I'm just really glad I've had that experience because... It's not simple, it's not straightforward, you know, there's a lot of false dichotomies in discussions around these matters and I just feel like it's really good grounding. So I've had a really incredible time at DPP, Yeah. instructed in lots of trials, murder trials, different things, so really got a good sort of grounding in criminal law. And so that's your taste into the courtroom and you're like, okay, well this is the future, the courtroom is where I'm meant to be and yeah. that's, pretty, that's pretty cool. Hmm. At what point do you work, do you make the leap from the DPP's office to the Aboriginal Legal Service? Is there anything in between? Yeah, mate, there's a few things in between. So the thing that happened for me was Australia intervened in the Solomon Islands uh, in 2004. And a couple of people I knew in the ACT legal community got jobs there with the Regional Assistance Mission because Australia sent army police in the context of a conflict there. Lots of people got charged and arrested, Uh, so lawyers had to be sent as well to support Mm -hmm. the system there because it was this huge influx into what was essentially a failed state. And and you put your hand up? I put my hand up, yeah. So some people at ACT Legal Aid went. I applied for a prosecution job there and got offered a defence job instead of a prosecution job. Yeah. yeah. And my really good mate now, Ken Avere, was the public solicitor of Solomon, so responsible uh, for legal aid defence work. And he was on the panel uh, to interview the prosecutors and the defence applicants. Mm. And for whatever reason, uh, he sort of chose me. Yeah. So I ended up being a defence lawyer there, public defender. So I moved there on, I think it was the 4th of September 2004. I landed in Honiara. And um, yeah, I mean, that sort Solomon of Island. changed the course of my life in That's so many true. different ways. Like I met my long-term partner there, um, started doing defence work and then stayed in defence work. I just had this incredible insight into this place, you know, like they'd had a conflict there that sort of started in the late 90s, kind of and sort of ethnic conflict in a lot of ways, but 
closely related to the sort of collapse of the state there. What's the history of the Solomon Islands in a brief sense? What is a sort of Western influence built up some sort of foundation and then it's been handed over and then it couldn't sort of maintain? So the history of the Solomons, as I understand it, it's obviously not my sort of expertise. Well, but yeah, same here. The British colonised the Solomons in, I think, the sort of late... 19th century. Oh, okay. Yeah, they did it in the context of the slave trade virtue, the black birding trade that Australia was obviously closely involved in. Um, They sort of set up a protectorate and stamped out black birding, as I understand it. Um, So they had the British there until they got uh, independence in 78. It was a pretty light-touch form of colonialism, I think. So they didn't sort of develop the place a lot. Um, End of World War II II changed the Solomons, I think, forever. So the Japanese occupied the Solomons. Oh, okay. Um, The airstrip, which is now Henderson Airport at Honiara, was built um, on Guadalcanal. Uh, The old colonial capital uh, had not been on Guadalcanal. But World War Two meant essentially that the capital sort of shifted to Guadalcanal. Mm. What that meant was people from the other islands moved to Guadalcanal. So from World War Two sort of onwards, lots of Malayan people moved there. For example, that's that's one of the other big islands. Yep. And then in the late nineties, the Asian financial crisis happened. The sort of state in the Solomons was failing. Right. I think financially and socially, uh, economically, the place was failing. Um, the uprising on Bougainville started in the 90s, the mid-90s. Yeah. And I think that sort of idea of, you know, Melanesian people protesting around land use issues and mineral sort of extraction issues spread into Guadalcanal mm-hmm. and a militant group started there. And their big beef was, you know, Malaitan settlers moving out from Honiara into Guadalcanal. onto the Guadalcanal plains and basically occupying... Land and so forth. So the so-called GRA started, I think, to 97, 98. Harold Keke was one of the leaders of that, who ended up featuring a lot of the trials I was involved in. But they expelled the Malaitan settlers, basically, from the hinterland Uh and sort of drove them all into Honiara. And then the Solomon State, and the Prime Minister then was a Malaitan guy, Um, they couldn't sort of deal with this uprising on Guadalcanal, they sort of lost control of Guadalcanal, basically, apart from the capital. And then a Malaitan group started in response to that, you know, supposedly to defend the Malaitan people. A lot of police officers sort of moved from the police into that group, which is Mm. called the Eagle Force. And then they ultimately staged a coup in 2000, uh, overthrew the government. Um, So it was all very messy. They had a sort of a thing called the Townsville Peace Agreement towards the end of 2000, which stabilised things a bit. But this sort of Guadalcanal group, uh, which Harold, which this guy, Harold Keke, uh, was a leader of, they sort of retreated to a part of the island and still controlled it. Mm. So the, some form of civil conflict still continued and the state was still incredibly weak. So by the time you got to 2002, 2003... There were sort of various atrocities, particularly on the south of Guadalcanal. Yeah, right. It was a terrible event where six Catholic priests got murdered, or brothers, I think oh, they were. A um, whole bunch of civilians taken hostage and lots of them killed um, on a beach in Guadalcanal. Uh. And this Harold Keke fellow was basically quite mad. 
had a sort of serious mental illness. And this sort of movement or idea started in Australia that Australia needed to intervene there. And this is all in the context of, you know, September 11. Mm. You know, there was concerns at the time about China and even even potentially Cuba mm. offering some sort of support to the Solomons and the kind of geostrategic environment, the war on terror, all that mm. sort of stuff. That all kind of fed together and eventually the Australian government intervened. And did you have any hesitation going there? None at all. Yeah, cool. Yeah, none no at safety all. concerns or anything like that? Or were you nah. up for the challenge? Yeah, yeah, totally. And Have you ever wasn't. felt safety concerns about anything? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can talk about Afghanistan in a bit of you. Well, we're going to get to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you just jumped straight in. Straight into it, mate. Now, I remember when I got that job, I was sitting in my office at Canberra at the DPP and I just had never felt so happy to have this opportunity yeah. to do what at the time just seemed like such an adventurous and exciting thing. Was there a timeline on it? Mate, I got a one-year contract initially, I think, or a yeah, nine-month contract, I can't remember. But ultimately, those contracts got rolled over and I stayed there until the end of 07. So how many years? Three and a half. Oh, wow. Yeah, and mate, I did all these murder trials and wow. war crimes trials and terrible things that had happened. And, you know, just also represented lots of ordinary Solomon Islanders in different, you know, sorts of legal issues. Um, so, man, I just feel so privileged to have had that opportunity. Like, it was just extraordinary. That's amazing. Uh, mm. So, after Solomon's, what are you coming back to? So, mate, on my original plan when I came back, and coming back was incredibly difficult, I must say. Why? Like, well, just... Different world. You know, people that have worked overseas for long periods, particularly at a sort of younger age, I think they'll understand. You... It's just really difficult coming back after some years away in such a totally different place to Australia. It's just really, it's hard to explain what it is. This sort of decompression thing, it's just really hard. Um, so my plan originally was to go back to Canberra and study for a year, do a master's. Yeah. So I started studying and then... My, Why did you feel the need to do that if you've already got this experience? Mate, before? the reason I wanted to do a master's was I wanted to just work overseas again straight away. Like, oh, I just okay. had the bug to do overseas work. But why is, it, why is your master's your ticket to that? Oh, because at that time, particularly, it's probably still the same, but at that time, a lot of those international UN jobs and stuff, you had to have a master's. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Yeah, so yeah. I just thought it would be a good thing to do, and I'd always wanted to do it. And there were some things I wanted to, to sort of research and study about the work I've been doing there. Yep. So, I, yeah, I came back, started studying at ANU, and then my friend Monica Boogs, who had been the court reporter at the Canberra Times when I was a prosecutor. Yep. She'd gone on uh, to work for Simon Corbell, who was then the ACT Attorney General. She yep. was his media advisor then. She ultimately became his chief of staff. But they were looking for a legal advisor. This is sort of early 08. Um, and she said, oh, you should apply for this job. And I'd always been really interested in politics and I guess wouldn't would have always been interested in being a political advisor, but had never really sort of aimed towards working in it. Mm. And then I applied for that job and got that. And so I started with Simon, would have been maybe April uh, 2008. And then worked as his advisor for, yeah, best part of two years. Yeah, right. Mm. And that was your first foray into sort of political work. Yeah. And how did you find, did you, I mean, I'm just assuming from your tales of Solomon Islands going into a political environment, it didn't feel stale to you or did it feel just as lively, just as enthralling or... Mate, my head was in two places, I must say, for probably two or three years, you know. Yeah, okay. Um, but no, I found the work really interesting. Okay. And, you know, it was a really good opportunity for me because Simon wasn't a lawyer. And you're, not, you're out of the courtroom. I was out of the courtroom, totally. You're in a stale 
can bear in office. Yeah, like I was just advising Simon on legal issues and political issues, and he wasn't a lawyer. I was not a lawyer, so he was the attorney general. He was the attorney general. I mean, he's a he's a brilliant guy, and it's an interesting loophole where they allow non-lawyers to be the, t- the Attorney General. Yeah, I don't think there was any lawyers in caucus. I can't remember. Okay. I mean, the ACT caucus is pretty small. I mean, so. you don't have to. Yeah, you, you don't, don't have, have to be a lawyer. In the same way, you know, the health minister, you know... Doesn't have to be a doctor. He's yeah, normally yeah, a doctor. Yeah. yeah, sure. So, yeah, it was a really good sort of time in terms of just getting involved in complicated policy issues, um, helped to sort of form uh, the ACT government's law reform sort of policies for the next election. I think there was an election there in... I was working for Simon when it was. It might have been the end of 08, I think. Yeah, and the government was re-elected. And um, so I did that for a while. But, yeah, I just wanted to get back into the courtroom. And I'd always wanted to work at the Aboriginal Legal Service to do a stint there. Because this is where I want to go eventually. But why? Why did that come up? Mate, I just... Ever since I'd been a lawyer... I had been attracted to working on Indigenous justice issues. Was it the NT that maybe... um, Yeah, that definitely influenced me. And I guess I had in the back of my mind some intention to go back there and work, definitely. Um, But, you know, um, I ultimately saw a job advertised. I I remember seeing it. I was sitting in a cafe on a Saturday morning in Canberra where I'd normally go and read the paper. Mm -hmm. And I saw a job advertised to be a trial advocate at the Aboriginal Legal Service in Dubbo. So I put in for that. Yeah, right. And I didn't get it. I didn't get it. And um, so I went back and worked at the DPP for about two months. Oh, you did? Yeah. And then, yeah, I got a phone call from Nadine Miles, who's now the, the sort of head lawyer at the ALS. And she said, oh, the guy that got it's quit. So they were still within their time that they could just, you know, choose someone who'd previously applied. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, I got the job just a little bit later than what I expected. Great. Yeah. And um, I was just going to, I was meaning to ask, this is your first foray into Dubbo? Yep. And then, and, and the rest is history, but <laughs> I mean, you've got a story, you've got a storied history in Dubbo. So, so you go from the ACT to Dubbo. Mm. Um, and I remember in my first week, I was taken over to meet the magistrate, mm. who was a guy called Howard Hamilton. Oh, yes. I know the name. And I, yeah. And I went into chambers and he looked at me in his sort of way and he said to me, what I want to know, Mr. Lawrence, <laughs> is why you quit working for the ACT Attorney General to come and work at the ALS in Dubbo. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds ridiculously <laughs> ominous. But can I just ask you back, the, uh, back on the uh, Aboriginal question? Um, and, and you could probably answer this now that you've had such a large stint um, working at the ALS and so much exposure to it. Um, and this is this is a bit separate from your story. Uh, how much more work needs to be done? Like, is it are we so far beyond a tale of two cities? It's not funny. And is there any merging of 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 the the sort of the separation of the worlds in terms of the disadvantage that one community is experiencing over our community, which I would dare say is a little bit more advantageous. How can we sort of bring them close together? I know my questioning is completely uncouth. Not at all. But you know what I mean? Like there's a, there's a question, there's, there's a question that remains unanswered Mm. and, and it's, it's, it's the disadvantage question. Yep. Is it solvable in your experience? Mate, looking at it from, I guess, through the prism 
of, you know, the criminal justice system, which I work in, you know, it's a sort of a frustrating, it's a frustrating question in the sense that this issue of Aboriginal overrepresentation has been around for such a long time. You know, we had the Royal Commission into Black Deaths in Custody, which pointed to overrepresentation as the cause of that, basically, and made all sorts of recommendations around reducing Aboriginal people's interaction with the criminal justice system. But the issue boils along, it's never really been dealt with or solved, and there's this kind of natural tendency for people to throw their hands in the air as if to say that it's all too hard. Mm. And, you know, that's closely related, I think, to disadvantage in the sense that, you know, if you, I mean, if you're talking about the gap in outcomes between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people, you have to factor in as a really important factor the effect of the criminal justice system because, you know, every and all research on this issue will show you that if you jail people, then you reduce their outcomes in a whole range of areas in so many different ways. That's especially so with kids. There's all sorts of statistics about a child who goes into custody as a 14-year-old, what that means for their eventual outcomes and so forth. So this question of overrepresentation is just integrally linked to these questions of disadvantage mm. in a way that I just don't think is necessarily that widely understood or yeah. reflected you know, in social policy. Yeah. But this idea that kind of comes up, which is nothing works and we can't solve this problem, I just find that very frustrating because if you look at a community like Dubbo, we don't even have a drug and alcohol rehab centre. Right. You know, and I used to work at the ALS in Dubbo for a number of years and it used to frustrate me no end that we were representing all the Aboriginal juveniles coming into contact with the system. Mm -hmm. We had no kind of resourcing for wraparound services. We had no resourcing for special staff members and programs to ensure young people comply with their bonds. And I used to help write grant applications and talk to different people and say, you know, you're concerned about the gap and you're concerned about these kids and their families who basically make up the gap. But, you know, and they are channeled through our office. They're forced to interact with the criminal justice system. They're channeled through our office for us to represent them. Like, what a way to access them and to assist them. But I just felt that that things didn't happen that could easily have happened. So Mm -hmm. I find the whole debate a bit frustrating in the sense that its longevity kind of tends to suggest that everything's being tried. Everything's not being tried. Mm -hmm. And I find that very frustrating. And, you know, the one that I keep coming back to, and this has been a big part of my political sort of campaigning and messaging in Dubbo is, Don't tell me that we're trying to deal with these issues seriously when we don't even have drug and alcohol rehab centres in, you know, large country towns that are the epicentres of this issue of Aboriginal overrepresentation. So is this why you went into politics? Uh, Yeah, like it's a big part of it, yeah. Like I, you know, spent my time at the ALS, uh, worked there for five years, took a year off. Uh, to work in Afghanistan on, in a sort of similar role to what I was doing in the Solomons. Yeah. And when I was in, a, like, in my time in Afghanistan, I had a lot of time to reflect and think about my future and kind of made a decision there to try to go into politics when I came back. Let's go to Afghanistan. So, uh, obviously, it was a, a, a state in disarray at the time. What year are we talking here? 2007? No, so I went to Afghanistan... August 2013. Oh, okay, okay. So, you know, seven years later, six years later. Obviously, we know know, we're much more exposed to the story of Afghanistan and the trials that we're facing there. Does a call go out to people who were involved in the Solomons uh, 
exhibition or, or, or were you keeping your eyes open? How did you find out about these postings over there? Mate, I found out about it because they set up a thing in during uh, the Kevin Rudd time called the Australian Civilian Corps. Oh, okay. And it was a... Yeah, it's now sort of been morphed into something else, but it was basically a, a standing kind of group of people to deploy to... Uh, to conflict, post-conflict and natural disaster environments, basically. And lots of um, uh, countries have these things, like a standing body of people that are registered and trained and available to go. Yep. It was, it was actually brought... Are you still a member? Or it just doesn't No, I let my... You know, it, it, it was sort of morphed into something else, and I let it lapse a couple of years back, uh-huh. just because I'm not really in that sort of space anymore. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but the Australian Civilian Corps was actually actually came out of the 2020 summit that Rudd held. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I think remember. it might have been one of the only things that really came out of it that <laughs> <laughs> sort of went anywhere. That kind of stuff, yes. Yeah, but I joined that. I can't remember when I joined it, but it probably would have been when it first started, like maybe 2009, 2010. Yeah. I was still obviously thinking about doing, you know, doing international work. work. Doing the Masters, yeah. So they... And then the history of our involvement in Afghanistan was the Australian Civilian Corps' involvement was, I think Gillard had a meeting with Obama Mm -hmm. at some point, maybe 11, 12 type period. And Australia agreed to assist in the justice space in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, agreed to send advisors and provide some money to... to, to basically help to deal with a cohort of people that had been captured by coalition forces. So Australia, America... But how does it work, though? So was there some sort of international court of justice set up or at what sort of administration has sort of jurisdiction over this area? Yeah, that's a really interesting, interesting and complicated question. So basically, the coalition forces intervened in Afghanistan when they captured Taliban people. They detained them in their own facilities under sort of international law, effectively. So the law of armed conflict has got provisions around detention. Okay. And by this sort of time, so 11, 12, there was a large amount of Taliban people in uh, in, uh, custody of America, Australia, the Netherlands, etc. The UK as well. And they needed to basically transition them into Afghan custody. So they needed to provide trials for them or release them. And so they brought together essentially an Afghan court yep. that sat um, in Bagram, which is an American military base. Yep. So it was a division of the Afghan Supreme Court, I think it's called. And they transitioned all these detainees into that court, basically. So a new sort of... A new legal system is established in Afghanistan on the spot, roughly, uh, and 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 what's it basing its law off? Uh, Afghan law. Okay, so there is a history of Afghan law, and, yep. it's, and it's and someone's gone through and read the statutes or and yep. So we were just so working. you had to read up on Afghan law. Yes, yeah, so we had translations of all their main acts. Um, I mean, it was a very rough fit. There's nothing in there that said Taliban's cool. Section no. 33. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. They were very old pieces of legislation. Well, I can imagine. Yeah, yeah, based originally on European law effects. So, what, yeah, that's what I'm trying to get at. Like, what is its influence? You know? So, they come out of the civil system, basically. Okay, so, I right, think the right, German, right. French, yep, quasi-inquisitorial yep, yep. type system yep. was what they had there. Yeah. But it was a very rough fit in the sense that, I mean, for example, the procedural laws around detention 
in these cases that I was involved in could never be complied with because people would have been in detention for three or four years or so forth. A lot of the evidence wouldn't have been gathered in compliance with Afghan law. And so you basically saw these judges just make it work in the sense And these were like historically trained judges that they brought in and people from the community who worked in the justice system. Yeah, they were Afghan judges who worked in the justice system. Before before the Taliban, presumably, and... Yeah, some I, understanding. I didn't know all their personal histories, but I gather some had been lawyers for a long time. In so Afghanistan. the US would have vetted them? Yeah, I mean, they came up every day from Kabul, basically, uh, to work in Bagram in the court. And um, they would have had different security vetting and stuff, definitely, to get into Bagram. And then Afghan lawyers came up as well, so prosecutors and defence lawyers. Wow. So these people, yeah. who probably presumably couldn't have worked, or maybe quickly retrained, or I don't know... Yeah, some of them... Yeah, I mean, this was a fair while after the American invasion. Okay. Yeah, so the Taliban had been overthrown basically, I think, late 2001. Okay. Um, so we're sort of talking 10 years down the track. Yeah. So, yeah, people have been graduating from unis and doing law and, you know, working in and courts and there was and stuff. still a, an Afghanistan law offered. Yeah, yeah. Post-Taliban. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Just... Pushing forward into the future, what do you think the status of any of these people who operated in this capacity, aside from the Americans, is now in a post-new Taliban world? Well, mate, I can tell you. In Yeah, so a lot of the guys I worked with, and it was all guys, um, a lot are in America now. So all the interpreters, for example, that worked at the court, or many of the interpreters had been military interpreters before they worked at the court. They all got asylum in the States, as I understand it, or certainly most of them did. In the last 12 months, last 16 months. Some of the lawyers got out. There's um, certain of them got out even during the time that I was there. Others left when it all sort of went down. So on the day that um, uh, that Kabul fell to the Taliban, I remember getting a message from a guy that I'd worked with, and he, I think he'd left a few days before, and he just turned up in... Mm. And he messaged me saying that he was there. Mm. Um, so made as many got out as could. I know not all did. So I'm yeah speaking to a guy at the moment oh, who's wow. in who's trying to come to Australia, and he got out of Afghanistan after the fall of Kabul and spent some time in. Oh wow! So, he's so these now people were definitely targeted. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they were being targeted while I was there. Wow. I mean, they were travelling up from Kabul facing you know, the risk of being killed and stuff. And what was it like? I mean, I know we've spoken off record about this. It's, you know, I don't want to dwell on it too much, but you're living in Bagram Air Base Mm. and you're woken up periodically by bombs and things like that. Yeah. So the base got attacked by a so-called indirect fire probably two to three times a week. And Um, what does that mean for you? Are you... you, Mate, it's quite funny. So I remember on the day I arrived, so I landed a Bagram in a helicopter from Kabul my colleague, James Watson, who was this amazing guy that I worked with, he picked me up at the sort of airstrip at Bagram. And I had sort of heard about the security issues and knew that they, you know, the base got hit by indirect fire and stuff. Yeah. But anyway, we're driving back to the side of the base that we all lived on. And we drive past this sort of structure that's got a huge burning hole okay. in the side of it. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. And that was going to be your room, obviously. And I said, oh, what's that, mate? And he goes, oh, that just got hit by a mortar or a rocket. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember thinking, oh, okay. And, um, but I didn't actually see something that immediate um, and direct again. But I heard a few of them. Yeah. So every so often there'd be an incoming 
incoming fire warning. You, would there be okay? So like a, yeah, there's a siren. Oh man! Yeah, it's called the European Whale. I think it was called. Yeah, the European yeah, yeah. Whale. Yeah. And what you just and that would sort of happen, and, and then it would say incoming, incoming, and incoming. What, oh my god! And the idea was that everyone would then sort of seek cover, duck, and, and cover. I remember one day I was walking along, <laughs> going to have lunch or whatever at the cafeteria, and the European Whale sounded, and you get this sort of sound, incoming, incoming. And I was sort of walking along and I saw these soldiers start to run for one of the oh, no. sort of structures. And there was this old Afghan-American woman who was an interpreter. She was walking in front of me and she just didn't change her pace. <laughs> she just kept plodding along. And I thought, well, if she's not running, I'm not running. But <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it just oh, becomes right. part of life. And it didn't happen that often. It was often at night. Um, right. Okay. There was one bad attack when I was there where I think four people were killed at a bus stop on the other side of the base. Oh, my gosh. So it was definitely something that was sort of always there as a possibility. How but, long were you there for? Mate, I did three three month stints. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Three, so three nine month months all up. Yeah. Um, so you three months come home, three months come home. Yeah, two months and then come home for a month. Oh, okay. And your yeah, parents are just months. like ringing you? And- Mate, my parents were beside themselves when I told them that I was going and they strongly opposed me going. Yeah. And they, um, they moved through different stages of their opposition. So <laughs> their first stage was just like, how could you even be thinking about doing this? This is lunacy. Yeah. And then I was like, look, I'm doing it. And then they moved to morally you shouldn't be doing this right you know the americans have tortured people there it's oh, unethical okay. of you to do this sure, this sure, is not sure. you yep um so they had different stages in their attempts to stop me going there yeah, but they ultimately yeah. just respected that i wanted to do it yeah and um well, what about what about your partner oh he was fine <laughs> he was absolutely fine uh, uh, yeah fine. whatever <laughs> see you in three months yeah and he just knows me that 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 kind of thing wouldn't stop me doing something that I want to do. So, and you're you're done in that respect. You would never do anything like that. I don't. I suppose you'd never say never. But you're you're. That's not where you're headed now. Yeah. Look, I'm interested in international work again, and I find transitional justice stuff really interesting. You know, conflict and post conflict justice. So I'm not saying that I would never do it again. But I've got a son now as well. So. You know, Priorities. that sort of changes your views on things. But look, at that time, I had no compunction going to Afghanistan and. For me, it was, you know, a big adventure and involved really interesting work that I wanted to do. And yeah, like it, a lot of it was very boring. Like, you know, the days on the bases, it was like Groundhog Day, honestly. Yeah. Like, you can't go anywhere. No, I mean, the base is big. There was 20, 30,000 people living okay. in Groundhog okay. It's a very big place. People from all around the world. What do you do? You it. can't go to the shops. You can't, you can't go to a local Afghanistan restaurant. Mate, there was a couple of restaurants on the base. Yeah, but they're like Western stuff, right? No, there was one Afghan restaurant. Okay. Yeah, and there was a whole lot of rug shops. Over okay. on the other side of the base. I bought about 10 beautiful Afghan rugs when I was there. Shipped them home. Shipped them all home. They're yeah. all in my house now. That's nice. Mate, I had a... You know, when I look back on it, you sort of have rose-coloured glasses, I guess. Yeah, and I okay. look back on just these amazing people that I worked with. Yeah, Lindsey Graham, one of them. I met Lindsey Graham when I was there. <laughs> <laughs> he, um, he came to Bagram because he's a naval reservist, I think. Okay. So part of that involved two weeks service a year or whatever it is. So he came to Bagram, but he was being sort of chauffeured around yeah, or whatever, I think. But he had an interest in Bagram because he'd been one of the people that had lobbied for the funding for the Justice Centre in Parliament, oh, okay. yeah, which That's is what cool. this court was called. Yeah. So I was dragged out as one of the Australians to meet him and have this fascinating conversation with him. Fascinating About conversation what? with him. So I was introduced to him as the Australian Justice Advisor person. Yep. Talked about Australia. 
he talked about his father having served in World War II in Australia. Right, okay. And started to cry. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, teared up, which yeah, right. I thought was fascinating. Yeah. And then he started to talk to me about the sort of justice processes, you know, in the court. And I just sort of gave him my opinion, which was basically that on one level it's functioning and about you know about one third of the people going through it are being acquitted because there's no evidence against them. Uh-huh. But there's a, obviously a lot of shortcomings in the justice process. Like you can't cross-examine people in, in this court. You couldn't cross-examine people in this court. Why you not? Is that, challenge... is that Afghan law? No, it was just the way that it functioned there. Oh, okay. um, they couldn't practically... For, I mean, you know, a lot of the cases were involving, you know, possession of ammunition, membership of the Taliban, uh, possession of drugs was a big one, large sort of stashes right, of opium right, right, and stuff. Yeah. And practically... I mean, how do you prove a membership to the Taliban? Well, you couldn't practically, in that situation, bring witnesses to court for that volume of cases. We're doing a lot of cases. You couldn't fly them all in. And this is how it often works in sort of developing country context. They just make the law fit the situation. So Mm -hmm. you couldn't cross-examine, so you didn't cross-examine. Right. And a lot of the people effectively had no had no allegation against them. Like they'd been captured, you know, on the battlefield essentially, yeah. and there wasn't really a clear allegation against them. So they were all found not guilty. But if there was an allegation against someone, such as their fingerprints on an improvised explosive device, uh, propaganda on their mobile phone, then that would just go up to the judges in paper form, and they'd be found guilty and sentenced. Okay. Um, so I just explained that to Lindsay. Is you, are you, are you saying there's, there's no procedural fairness? <laughs> yeah, I just said to him, look, there's a lot of shortcomings here, you know. Anyway, he got quite irate at that. Why? Uh, he was sort of saying, he, I remember him saying to one of the, might have been the American ambassador that was with him. Okay. Saying to him, this, this Australian needs to be taken on a tour through the Afghan jails. He needs to see what the normal Afghan system's like and how terrible it is and Etc. Etc. And I think he was pretty defensive of the Justice Centre in Taiwan because he'd been involved in funding it. Yeah. And look, he had a perspective obviously that I didn't have, and he knew lots about Afghanistan that I didn't know. And I wasn't attempting really to be difficult in what I was saying. I was just being frank around, you know, the limitations of the process and what the process was. And well, you uh, have an experience in solidified, well, not solidified, but foundational common law. Mm. And here is Law on the Run. Yeah. It was Law on the Run. Yeah, 100%. How bizarre. Okay, cool. uh, Listeners can probably tell some children are running around in the the background here. We're having quite an in-depth conversation. It's uh, taking over most of the afternoon, but it's good. Good good. To, it's good to get this on record. I've always these are the things I've always wanted to ask you, so it's good to finally get that down on record. So from Afghanistan, you uh, come back to Australia, and then what? Presumably, remain with the ALS for a, a short period, or what yeah. So that? I'd taken a year's leave without pay from ALS, and okay. the project in Afghanistan finished a little bit early. So I came back in. I think it was like May June of 2014. Mm-hmm. Wasn't due back at work until September. And you said while you're over there that you'd done some soul searching and what you want to do. And you've obviously, in that time, made a decision that you would like to actively pursue a career in politics. Yes. And so you come back, and at the 2015 state election, you are the Labor candidate for Dubbo. Yep, correct. And how did that all come about? You were an active branch member? I mean, Mate, I, no, so I'd, I'd actually joined the Maroubra branch of the Labor Party when I was 
sort of 18. Okay. Um, and then didn't stay involved for that long. Mm-hmm. And then got involved back in the ACT when I was working for Simon, but not really that heavily. Like okay. I was more focused on the sort of legal stuff. Yep. So I got in contact with the branch in Dubbo. That would have been, would that have been maybe like August 14 or something? Yep. Um, and said I was keen to run. And the only, wasn't, it was interesting. It was sort of a combination of things because I'd been involved in a campaign around getting a rehab centre for Dubbo as part of my ALS position. Yep. And then a woman called Sharon Thomas came into the office, I think when I was on a month holiday from Afghanistan and I was helping out with job interviews for ALS because I was still very involved and Felicity Graham was acting in my job. And Sharon said, oh, Labor's looking for a candidate for Dubbo. You should do it. It's a great opportunity. You're living in Dubbo. I'm living in Dubbo. Yeah. And she knew that I was finishing up in Afghanistan shortly and that I'd be back for the next year. Sure. And she said, oh, why don't you do it? It's a good chance to campaign on the rehab centre issue. Yeah. And I'd sort of already been thinking about, you know, this politics stuff. Yeah. um, In the time that I had in Afghanistan. So I just thought, yeah, I'm going to do that. Wow. Yeah. So I joined the local branch, got involved, said I was keen to run. And yeah, then I ran, which was huge. And was and, and <laughs> was it everything you hoped it would be? I mean, uh, like, did they tell you the uh, the likelihood that you were going to knock off the soon to be? <laughs> I think at the time the deputy premier. No, or... he was a backbencher when I Is that right? started running. I think yeah, because Troy got elected in twenty eleven. No, he was already a minister. I think by twenty fourteen. Sure, I think he was like minister for gaming or a couple of other things. Yeah. He became deputy premier during the election campaign. Is that right? Yeah. Okay, made life worse. Yeah, yeah. No, I knew that I wasn't going to win. Um, but I always had this, I suppose I had this ethos of not treating it in any other different way just because I knew that I couldn't win. Yeah. So I put a lot of time into it, yeah. a lot of kind of thought into my campaign issues. And, you know, I mean, I didn't spend six months door knocking or anything, but sure. I did quite a lot of work on it. Did you get a swing? I got a swing, yeah. We got a... I think it was like an 8% swing or That's something. That's all right. Yeah. That's amazing. I mean, I wouldn't take total credit for that in the sense that of our course. vote in 2011 in Dubbo was 8%. Okay. You know, just because of what was going on then. So it was always going to bounce back to some degree. But in fact, it was more than 8%. I think my swing must have been like 16 It was a correction. Because I got 24% of the primary vote, I think. Yeah. Which I was really happy That's with. That's great. Yeah, and it was a really fun campaign. And... I was able to effectively campaign on things like drug court and rehab and stuff yep. like that. And friends like Felicity Graham came over and assisted at yep. that time. Yeah, hugely. Yeah, so Flick and I had started working together in 20, 2010 at ALS Dubbo. Yeah. She'd gone off to Broken Hill office to run that. She came back to Dubbo, I think must have been 2012 or something, to run the office there. Yeah. Uh, by then I was a principal legal officer for the West. And then she took that job for a year while I was away. And then, yeah, I did the election campaign. Flicky was a huge help in the election campaign as well as work stuff. Yeah. And then um, we both went to the bar in 2015 in May. So talk to me about that. Why? I mean, it's really fascinating that you'd had all this experience and you'd had all this. You really, It feels like you've really pushed being a lawyer to the nth degree. I mean, it's really quite interesting because I've, 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 in my you know, time amongst people, I've known some solicitors. But I've never known any to just drive it. Like, let, let's see how, how far the, these credentials can take me. <laughs> and, and, but they don't stop there for you. They make you, you make an active decision to go, what's the, how, do, how do you level up at a local level? Mm. And it's the bar. When did the, when did the prospect or the idea of the bar come to you? Was it always there or did you go, well, what's the next level? Yeah, so Felicity and I 
were like very close colleagues at ALS and we did push it to the nth degree. Yep. So we took that job very seriously. You know, we took cases to the high court. We did big media campaigns, got national attention. Yep. We did a lot of policy work, lobbying for law reform. So, yeah, we were a very effective team as I look back on it. And we did push it to the nth degree. And But ultimately, in the law, if you want to do advocacy as your main thing, the sort of bar calls, you know. But and how come it took you so long then? Mate, because there was just all these other stuff that I wanted to do. Yeah, okay. You know, like, and I really treasure my time as a solicitor. And I tell, you know, people who who I talk to about their careers and stuff looking forward, like... You know, jumping straight to the bar is not necessarily a good thing. Like, you can do a lot of things that are good for you and your career and your capacities as a solicitor, and also things of great service, you know, to the community. And I look back on my time at the ALS and my overseas work and all that sort of stuff, and I do like to think that I made a contribution. And it's a contribution I couldn't have made as a barrister because a barrister is a particular role, which is very client driven. Whoever walks in the door, you act for them in their cause, their personal cause, their case. Whereas as a solicitor, particularly at an organisation like the ALS, um, you're part of a movement, you know, and you're part of an organisation that is pushing for things on a very broad level. And we did a lot of strategic litigation, you know, we took the Bug Me case to the High Court, we did all sorts of things, we targeted particular areas where the law needed to move and particular policy areas, you know, where movement was needed, and we use the power of that organisation to push those issues. Um, and that's not stuff you can really do as a barrister. You can do other amazing stuff as a barrister. But So that time as a solicitor for me was really awesome, but I wanted to pursue work as a courtroom lawyer, you know, so that sort of took me to the bar. Do you not feel constricted by your own measuring stick there where it's client focused and you do take whatever comes through the door you don't find that to be a handicap no I, I mean I suppose I do you know and as I'm kind of looking forward to the state election and maybe being in parliament I'm really looking forward to being able to do things on a broader level you know a systemic level um and the kind of thrill of running criminal trials is not quite what it used to be And I've certainly done some cases that have had a very broad effect, I guess, in some ways. Um, But yeah, most of the work you do at the bar, it's just whatever case comes along and some of it's humdrum, some of it's awful and horrible and you deal with really kind of difficult subject matter. Mm -hmm. And that's something that over the years I've found increasingly hard. Yeah, right. Yeah, And also the stresses of trials, like I'm doing a trial at the moment and you wake up before I am. You wake up at 4 a.m. thinking, God, why did I ask that question? Or I didn't do this or I haven't done that. Like the stress of running a criminal trial is is, is acute. And this role that criminal lawyers play, you know, in that sense is really important, but also really hard. Mm. So as I look forward to something else, I kind of think the timing's been good in the sense that, I don't know, I admire people that have been, you know, running criminal trials for 30, 40 years at a high level. I think hmm. I think it's extraordinary. I don't think I'm tough enough. <laughs> what do you reckon about these barristers who write fiction on the side? Yeah, do you kind of go, who are you? Yes. <laughs> the headspace. I, don't you reckon? Yeah. I mean, I guess I've done other things that people might think, how do I find the headspace? But to write fiction? Yeah. Yeah, well, I don't have that. We're going to talk about your other things, but there's a really interesting relationship that you had with someone who, when I first met you, I was a year after, I met you a year after you lost this person, 
But it's a really interesting sort of story, how, how it all came apart. Sorry, how it all came about. Uh, can you tell me about your friend Sprint? Who was he and how did you meet him and what was the circumstances there? Yeah, so Sprint Dabwido was my client in a long-running trial that myself, uh, Felicity Graham, Christian Hearn, Mark Higgins, Neil Fennell, uh, David Hook, and a range of other people got involved in in Nauru. Nauru. Yeah, so our clients were basically a bunch of people who'd protested the removal of democracy in Nauru, basically. So the Nauru government, um, this is all a few years back now, but they'd suspended the opposition from parliament, they expelled the judiciary, they basically had set up an authoritarian sort of system there, basically. Right. Um, And our clients protested against it, sort of demanding the right to be let into parliament to vote on things that affected their constituencies. They all got charged with riot and sort of unlawful assembly and different things. Mm. They were denied legal aid by the government. So they sought assistance overseas. We all got involved in it somehow. I can't remember the exact intricacies of how we got involved in it, but we got involved in it. So we went over there for various different trips. I think we were over there four or five times all up, including appeals and different things. But yeah, so Sprint was my client. We had 20 clients or something. So we sort of spread them out, but I had Sprint and a few others. So Sprint had been a parliamentarian who'd been suspended from parliament. He'd been the president uh, at of one Nauru. time. Yeah, yep. yeah, of Nauru. So he, was the pre- so he was the president who signed, I think it was the, the agreement with Julia Gillard that set up regional processing for the second time. Okay. Um, and that was something that we all talked about with him and it was really interesting sort of hearing his perspective on it. What was his perspective on it? Without speaking on his behalf. Yeah, look, he recognised the impact on the people, you know, who'd been detained there. And he recognised how difficult for them Nauru was. Um, And he's speaking, obviously, as a Nauruan who's born in this really unusual environment where they live on this speck in the most, virtually one of the most isolated countries in the world. And it's very small. Mm Mm-hmm. But they love it and that's their home. But for other people to be taken there, he sort of recognised that that's quite damaging. Mm. And, but he also spread, you know, as a nationalist who acted in the interests of his people. And the money that that country got as a consequence of those agreements meant a lot. Yeah. And I don't think any responsible leader wouldn't have signed the agreement, basically. Yeah, that's really interesting. Even though lots of people would criticise it, you know, on moral grounds. Yeah. Um, but, you know... That's really interesting. If he wasn't to sign it, there's the next president who would sign it of Nauru. Yeah. It was always going to happen. It was always going to happen. And I think for their country, probably had to happen Mm. in that sense. Mm. Um, So, yeah, Sprint was my client. We did this long-running litigation. We got a permanent stay of the charges from the judge they ultimately appointed. We put a lot of pressure on the Nauru government through defending these people very rigorously. We appealed to the High Court successfully in relation to some matters. Who? The Nauruan High Court? or No, so the Australian High Court at that time had jurisdiction over Nauru. Is that right? Okay. Yeah, so we took some matters up. We won those. Then the Nauru government terminated the treaty that gave the High Court jurisdiction. <laughs> so our involvement in this case fundamentally changed the sort of Nauru justice system in that way. Really? Yeah, and it was a direct response to that. There's no doubt about yeah, that. Yeah, sure. Um, so anyway, this crazy case happened, but in the course, in the course of that case, um, we needed to vary Sprint's bail so he could leave Nauru. So he was under arrest. 
Yeah, he was on bail. Okay. They, they all spent some time in custody and then got released on bail. Sure. But then Sprank got really sick. He had heart problems mm. and then ultimately cancer. Mm. And so I remember talking to Spren and Lucy, just trying to think when it exactly was. It was after we'd got the permanent stay, then it was overturned ultimately. And Sprint had arranged for treatment for his cancer in Thailand because the Nauru government wouldn't fund it. Um, and I said to I said to him, mate, just come to Australia, seek asylum and get on Medicare. Mm. Like, don't go to Thailand. Mm. Um, he was on bail for a long time, sick, and the you know, Nauru government really stuffed him around in terms of getting his passport back and... Mm. I think were quite culpable in the way that they continued to persecute him as they persecuted him in various different ways. Yeah. Anyway, eventually got to Australia. My father, who'd worked in health, yeah. helped me to organise a, a meeting with uh, Dr. Smee, who was a, or is a really specialist um, uh, oncologist um, mm. at Prince of Wales. And I went with Sprint to the first consultation and... Um, yeah, I remember Dr. Smee sort of saying, oh, mate, this cancer's really bad. It's in your throat, but I think that we can save you. Ah. And um, Sprint was always this, like, super cool customer, like the life of the party, incredibly <laughs> brave, incredibly funny. Yeah. And I just remember, like, him breaking down at that point. Oh, yeah, this incredible, like, sense of relief and hope that maybe he would survive this. Um, but then really tragically, the throat cancer did a really unusual thing. Like it jumped to another part of his body where it wouldn't normally jump. And Mm. anyway, so he ultimately died in Armidale where him and Lucy had settled after they came to Australia. Mm. Um, yeah, which is just incredibly tragic. Um, and we all had the sort of chance to go up and visit him before he died. Um, and spent the weekend up in Armidale and took him, I remember we took him to a, like a camel farm outside Armidale. And there's this amazing lady that runs this camel farm and has all these other animals there and just had such a funny weekend with him and Lucy and yeah, but then yeah, Sprint died, which is just really unnecessary and tragic and that cancer should have been treated, but he never got out of Nauru in time and mm. it was just a mess. Um, but yeah, I've sort of, um, just think back on the way that he sort of faced it all and his perspective on it all and, yeah, incredible guy. So, you know, these stories that you're telling, so much, um, I mean, you faced a lot of situations that you could say were difficult, you know, Afghanistan, um, Sprint's situation, uh, Solomon Islands. To be in the political arena, it really tells a lot about what doesn't trouble you and campaigns aren't frightening to you and being bad-mouthed by your opponents <laughs> is something that really shakes the tree as much as it probably would a sensible individual in Parker. Is it, it, do you, would you agree from having heard the, your story in a somewhat limited scope of your story that you do have probably thicker skin going into these arenas than most? Maybe, yeah. Like, I think I'm pretty resilient, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's not the... Things aren't hard, you know? Yeah. Like, I found the 2015 campaign, like, doing candidate forums and the media stuff, particularly, like, live radio and all that sort of stuff, very nerve-wracking. Okay. You know? And 
but it's just I guess the question is like can you do it like do you just do these things and I guess I was able to do those things yeah. and I think my different experiences I guess help to build that resilience but yeah I sort of think about it as what does it make you capable of doing not what does it make easy? Sure. I don't find this political process easy at all. Yeah. And particularly my time in Dubbo as mayor and dealing with all the issues that came up in that sort of year, 2021, like that was incredibly difficult. That was a tough year. Yeah. But I was able to sort of get through that. Yeah. You know, that's but important thing. Do you feel, and maybe you need to remind yourself, a sense of perspectives? Yeah, I do feel a sense of perspectives. Yeah. And it's it's funny, like in little ways, I think... Because you've seen it all. Yeah, like it, it's funny. I remember coming back to Australia and working in criminal law and defence lawyers and colleagues would get super outraged about things like, you know, a client getting wrongly refused bail or something. And that's great. Like people should be passionate about yeah. that. And every day liberty matters and stuff. But I just remember always having this sense of perspective where it's like, yeah, that's terrible. But I've had clients on remand for five years. Yeah. The crimes they didn't commit. Yep. In terrible third world jails. And, <laughs> yeah. You know, just different things that you experience in those different things. Totally. And it just gives you a sense of perspective and balance. And, you know, in the political process gives you a sense ultimately of like what's really important and what's actually not that important. And um, I think it's made me a very much less, um, I don't know, like I've got this sense from my, I think from my professional work, but also overseas watching the way different people interact together and stuff of just trying to be civil, always trying to be civil. And I don't know, it's sort of important to me um, how you treat people on, a, on an interpersonal level. Mm. And I don't have much time for people that, yell at people and abuse people and lose their cool because I don't know. And maybe that's just part of my perspective from different things I've done that you just don't need to act like that. Have you always wanted to be your own boss because of that? <laughs> Man, I don't think I could really have a boss again in a typical sense. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm like just ruined by all the different things I've done. I could never be managed again. <laughs> um, just while we, while we lead, while we wrap up, um, uh, the Wigs podcast, which is how we met, what made you want to do that? And are you surprised that it's longevity that's still going? So, yeah, the Wigs podcast. So, this is my recollection of the sort of origin story. Yeah. So, me it's, and Felicity. Yeah. Uh, Felicity and I, I shouldn't say. My yeah. mother hates when I say me and someone. Okay, yeah. So, Felicity and I had talked about doing a podcast because we wanted to popularize these ideas. And then I think at the point where but I met... But why? What, what, what was going on that you're like, oh, people don't know about this. We need to talk about it. What was it? I think it came out of you know, this work that Felicity and I did in trying to run sort of campaigns and do advocacy on things at the ALS. Right. Like we just both had a belief in the importance of public advocacy yep. and stories and, well, you As know, you said, you're part of a movement. Yeah, achieving systemic change through making the community understand issues okay. through, through mm. communicating them, you know, mm. through mm. stories and through cases and... Um, and I think we might have already thought about Manny or, you know, sort of had the idea that Manny might be good on it. Because he was already working at a separate ALS. So he'd right? worked at ALS right. in Broken Hill Broken and Dubbo. With Felicity? Sort of, yeah, no, prior to us. I oh, think okay. he was there maybe 06, 07, maybe yep. a little bit earlier. Did you know him well? No, I didn't know him that well. I'd met him when I was working at ALS. He was already at the bar and I'd met him, I think, in court at Broken Hill a couple of times. Yep. But no, nah, not well at all. But I sort of knew of him and we just had this idea that, you know, he'd be good because yeah. he's a, 
He's just got an interesting perspective on the world, you know. He's a slightly agree. different thinker. Completely you know? agree. Yeah. Um, and then I met you at well, yeah, Chris's in Orange. Yeah. Was it in Orange the first time? Yeah, yeah. I'd heard of you because uh, obviously, um, you know, I'm a political junkie in terms of everything that Chris is involved in, um, and um, you were one of the. Chris was in a in a very heated challenge for the leadership of the Labor mm. Party at the time. Uh, it wasn't very heated. It was, you know, jovial. But uh, I took everything personally. Mm. And I knew of you because almost every branch was um, not going in Chris's favour. And there was one lone <laughs> voice in the Dubbo region going, oh, this guy's great. Mm. And I remember at the time amongst people in the know, when you came out in favour of Chris, everyone's like, dude, Steve Lawrence is... Steve Lawrence, Steve Lawrence, Steve Lawrence. And I'm like, oh, Steve Lawrence. And, and, and everyone's like... Chris, you've got Steve Lawrence's vote of approval. And Chris is like, shit, all right, this is pretty good. So um, it injected a lot of confidence in Chris. And then through that, I'm just doing research on you because who's this guy that everyone's saying is a big deal that he's supporting Chris? And, um, yeah, no, I just funny because I knew initially the perspective, my perspective of you was someone who was um, cordial and civil, but also... Um, uh, uh, really thought about your position before you took a position on something, mm-hmm. which I thought was really interesting. And and then and then I was really heavily biased in supporting Chris, no matter mm-hmm. what, because I'm ridiculously biased. But you had considered, you know, and I was like, yeah, that guy, he's considered, so therefore we are on the right track. <laughs> um, so it was really interesting to meet you when I was following Chris around on his campaign, um, and. Um, fortuitously, and I don't want to hijack this interview because I want to get some more out of you before we go, yeah. but fortuitously, I had enrolled to sign up for law. Yeah, you had. Yeah, that's right. Paul Cranny, a mutual <clears throat> friend of ours, uh, my cousin, mm. your uh, mutual friend at the ALS, told me at a meeting, uh, it was actually my uncle's funeral, he goes, hey, are you going to do law? And I think I was like 35 at the time. Mm. I was working for Bill Shorten, pretty comfortable you know, at the time, and I said, no. And he goes, why not? And that was just... Like, it was an aha moment. I'm mm. like, I don't know. Like, it was, that was it. Mm. And uh, I thought, thought about it for six months, and then I signed up. And then, lo and behold, I met you, I don't know. I'm trying to think when that was. So, it was... It was June-ish? Yeah. Of what year was that? That was... It was just lost the state election. So, we'd lost the 2019 election. Yeah, and so we'd lost that. the federal election yeah. as well. Yeah. So, something like 2019-ish. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you came with Chris to a fundraiser in Orange. Orange. What mm. was that? Like a... Dancing with the Dancing Stars. Dancing with the Stars. That's like right. That. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we sat next to each other and... I met Jack I Ayub. You you talked about being a podcaster or something. Yeah. And I said, I've been thinking about a legal podcast. Some of that, yeah, And you're yeah, like, yeah. that sounds great. We should talk about that. I yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It sort of just went from there. I thought you were going to be like everyone else and say... We'll record it and we'll send mm. you the stuff and then you just make it. And then when you go, you be the host. I was like, <laughs> is this guy nuts? Like, you know, but it was like, that was really fortuitous for me because mm. it, I don't know, there's, there's something about really speaking. Speaking is, and, and speaking in front of an audience, yeah. It, it, yeah, it's, it really makes or breaks you as an individual. Mm. And I felt... Particular, I just I felt a symbiosis in the fact that I was heavily involved in this study, and I knew that that's where I was going to go in life. And then to be involved in this podcast that sort of just sat as a blanket on top of it, and to be involved in it when I really shouldn't have been, I just felt really it just it was it's an interesting interesting moment. And just as the shows progressed and found its feet, and my studies progressed and found its feet, it's just this really interesting dichotomy. Mm. And I'm really curious to see what happens at the end of 
the next couple of months when I'm finished and the show continues and I'll feel less like an imposter syndrome situation going on. Mate, it's an know. interesting way to study law, <laughs> to be the host. Can I recommend if anybody... <laughs> think what we can comfortably call the most popular legal podcast Definitely. in New South Wales. Oh, yeah. Yeah, settle on that. Yeah. Mate, it's an interesting way to study law, to like every month be talking about law. It is, because there's so many... With group, a big legal audience. A big legal audience, big legal minds around the table and to be posed questions that come up in conversations and study and books that I'm reading within matters of days mm. is quite, it's, it's, you know, if ever I felt like there was some sort of guardian angel, like these, this is the moment when I'm like, Oh my God, talk about destiny. So it's really quite fortuitous. But, um, are you surprised back to my question? Are you surprised, uh, that we're still going with it? Cause these, these projects do fizzle out, you know, it's hard to keep them going. What's the drive? Mate, I'm What's not, your drive? I'm not surprised that we're still going. Yeah. Um, it's interesting doing it. It's fun uh, for me. I don't put a huge amount of prep into it. Mm. I'll be sort of rely on Felicity to do all that. <laughs> um, yeah, man, I just think that it's... And it's working, you know. Like, we've got an audience the size that kind of warrants the investment, I think. Yeah. Like, if we were plodding along, getting a few hundred listens every episode, I probably wouldn't bother, to be honest. Yeah, but which is what I thought my our initial reach yeah. would be. I mean, it was the Black Lives Matter stuff, right, that really sort of jumped us. It definitely yeah. jumped us, but we were on radar. We were on a radar before then, which surprised me. Yeah. I was like, okay, wow. Okay, this is... I remember the first episode, we got about a thousand listens pretty much straight away. Mm. And I remember you sending us all a message saying, wow, you guys are huge. And you didn't know. And I had no sense, but I had no sense of what numbers mean in podcast right. world, right? Yeah, so yeah. if someone had said to me, that's a failure, I probably would have thought, okay, that's a failure. Mm. But that was apparently quite a lot, right? Uh, yeah, to get a thousand for a brand new podcast. I thought it was great. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So we've obviously gone on from there. Yes. Um, and it just comes up all the time now. Like when I'm Appearing in court, people come up to me, oh, I'm a big fan of the wigs. And yeah. you sort of get this sense, wow, a lot of people have listened to this podcast. Yes, yes. Yeah. No, I think it's a great legacy. So if I'm, you know, like, th- there's a question that's coming up uh, off off air. Now that um, you are looking ho- more and more likely to be a member of parliament within the next 42 days uh, and no longer a wig... Uh, is the show going to still go on? And uh, that's the first question. Then we'll get to the next question after that one. Mate, as far as I'm concerned, yes. Um, Isn't there a conflict of interest there? I think if, you know, it might depend on exactly what role I'm playing if I do get there. Mm-hmm. Like it might get to a point where maybe I can't play the same role that I have been on the show. Yep. So I think for me, if you guys are happy with it, like I would just rather sort of wait and see. So keep doing it. But if it becomes untenable, then you could find someone else to sub in. <laughs> I, can't yeah. you, I just got you on record saying that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, would, you from six weeks ago, six months ago, would kick yourself for saying that. You reckon? Yes. Yeah. In fact, I've seen you say that. <laughs> um, let's just finish up. You're about to embark on another career change. You've spoken about your many um, career, career sort of movements. Um, always been focused on the law. You know, diligent, you know, zeroing in, zero, diligent focus on what it is that you want to achieve. Here you are about to be at... quite possibly the highest echelons of being able to make a difference finally was this what you've always wanted yes i think it is 
Yeah, like not necessarily that particular role, mm-hmm. but I've always wanted... I've never thought about my career as just a way to earn money to survive. Mm. I've always done stuff that I'm passionate about that I think makes a difference. And, you know, this role in Parliament, and this is something that I've thought about a lot, particularly since I was on council, like I really conceptualise this as something that is worth doing to serve the public interest. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's going to be my focus. Um, I've obviously got this interest in the law, right, and legal policy. But the closer I sort of get to it, the more kind of refined I feel about I'm just going to get in there and in all the proper forums that I'll be in where, you know, these things are decided, which is not just parliament, right, Mm. in part of a caucus, work on the issues, work out where the public interest lies and then be an advocate for that And, you know, that to me means what are the policy positions, what are the laws, what are the resource decisions that improve the lot of most people, you know, the majority of people, and identify where, you know, private and illegitimate interests are trying to impact on that and try to minimise that and and stop that and eliminate that. And I'm just really glad that I did my period on council because you just get a taste of of how those dynamics work, you know, and... So I just feel totally fired up. I'm really keen. I feel like it's a historical opportunity for us to really do good stuff. And just, yeah, fingers crossed that it all goes well. As a potential member of a a potential men's government, how important... This is a very political question, but, you know, you're running, so I have to ask a political question. How important is it that you win? So important. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I know the people, right, involved, you know, in this campaign and the people that are going to be part of the government. And I just have a deep confidence that this could be a very historical government that will do a lot of amazing stuff. I think things are aligning in terms of Albo being there as well, because so many of these issues, whether it's health, education, all sorts of things, you know, I mean, it's a federal system. So these, you know, policies that need to intersect between state and federal, I just feel like we've got an incredible opportunity. And 16 years, four more years of this government, the state's not going to go forward in the way that it will if we're there. Um, So really keen to finish my next trial. And then from the end of February, I'm going to campaign full time for a month. To just, you know, do my bit, basically. And the upper house is really important, too, because unless we increase our vote in the upper house, we're not going to have a majority there, that's for sure. And, we, you know, there might not be a progressive majority. So we need to drive up, you know, that upper house vote, particularly in country New South Wales, to try to get, you know, eight, nine people elected uh, from our side. Well, Stephen Lawrence, it's such a storied career that you've had. (laughs) It's not the end. Uh, It's just the beginning. But... I'm really happy that I'm a bit of part of it. So thank you for allowing me. Mate, thank you for being a part of it. Oh, it's yeah. been the best. Thank you for sharing. And I'm looking, for, I'm looking forward to having you move my admission <laughs> when the day comes. Thank you for being I'll here. Know your wig, Stephen Lawrence. Thank you. Cheers, mate. Thanks for listening. Please like The Wigs on Facebook at The Wigs Podcast. Don't forget to rate and review on iTunes. This podcast was brought to you by Minimal Productions, produced by Jim Mintz.